G'day mate, 40 here. The rain is gone, the sun is out here in Palm Beach, North Sydney. Just, I'm, I'm the lighthouse. Look at this amazing view. Now we're looking south towards uh, proper Sydney proper, the, the downtown, the Sydney Opera House. And I've uh, been listening to a conversation here with uh, Richard Spencer and company. The title of the show is The AI Illusion. It was recorded December 8, 2022. I think it's genuinely happening. Anyway, I went through all of this to say something about yayism, and then I'll give you guys the four. But I think, I think Fuentes is going through some pain. Uh, he's been denounced by almost everyone. Trump, a notable exception to that. Uh, although he was, he was kind of dissed by Trump, but he was not denounced. I mean, it's different to say, Nick Fuentes never heard of him, whatever. That, okay, that's disrespectful, but it's, uh, he's not denounced. I've never been denounced by Trump either. Trump instinctively won't demoralize his own troops. And he does know that Nick was, he surely knows who Nick Fuentes is, and he probably knows. Yeah, this is good, solid analysis from Trump. He does not diss people who support him, and he does not take kindly to those who criticize him. He knows that he was out there with the bullhorn in January 6th trying to get him off. So anyway, um, but I do think that there's something, the way I would describe what gayism is and why I have a certain respect for it and why I'm actually not going to like counter signal it. I'm not just going to be. And why is that? Because it has a theatrical nature, has a compelling theatrical presentation that uh, Richard Spencer, the old theater director, resonates with going to be like, oh, you and your black messiah, or you're, you're doing this to harm Trump. Very well, very likely, that actually was Milo's motivation, or one of his motivations. And I kind of stand by my little conspiracy theory about who, who got him together with Ye, and uh, you know, are the mercers of all... I, I could say, but more than one thing can be true. Milo's been kicked out of the campaign, and Ye just keeps doubling down on stuff. And this is what I would say about Ye, and I would... I'm offering a, a kind of charitable reading of it, and I'm trying to find good things about it. First off, it totally breaks the dissident right and the Alex Jones types or the Stephen Crowder types. They actually can't deal with it. It, it you know, really. How exactly are they broken? Right? How is Stephen Crowder broken? How is Alex Jones broken? How are Republicans broken by yayism? I, I just don't see it. I just like to get some you know, contra concrete examples of how Republicans are broken by Kanye West. Now, Alex, I think I was joking the other day. It's like Alex Jones wants to go on here and say, you know, you're not a Nazi like George Soros was a Nazi. Right? You know, these weird, convoluted, deflecting arguments. And Ye's like, no, I love, I love all people, but especially Hitler. He kind of blows it out of the water with these disarming and, and outrageous statements. The other thing about it, even if Ye is totally narcissistic and he loves Hitler... How many devices am I using to produce this live stream? I'm using my Apple iPhone... And then I'm live streaming on my cheap Oppo 15 phone because the, the data, right? It's the data that's the expense. So the data about you know, one eighth of the price using my Australian phone and Australian phone plan compared to using my T-Mobile American plan in Australia. So, but I also have my DGI Pocket 2. So this is what produces really high quality, high quality technical content. And it's got a clip-on mic that I just clipped to the top of my shirt. So I've been dividing things up approximately 
third to a half of my content, I try to do it with the high quality DJI Pocket 2. That's when you get that really clear 1080 production and good quality sound quality. And then I also add in some live streams which have far inferior quality, but then we get to have that interactive component that I just don't get to have when I record things on the DJI Pocket 2. So it is now 1.55 p.m. in Palm Beach, north of Sydney, Australia. On Monday afternoon, the Dallas Cowboys just survived the Houston Texans, 27-23. Uh, last I checked, Tom Brady and the Bucks were getting blown out by the 49ers, 35-7. Because he loves celebrities, and he loves Jesus Christ for the same reason, and probably loves, who knows, Leonardo. No, no, he, he, said, he liked the Nazi aesthetic, right? He liked the, uh, the artwork. But he, he said, he also said, I like... No, Kanye hasn't talked about liking the Nazi aesthetic, right? He's taken the Christian teaching, you know, love everyone, and combining it in an attention-grabbing way, right? He knows how to grab attention, so he's combining it with his media savvy to captivate people's attention. I like a lot more. He did many good things. I don't think he was just talking about uniforms. But I think, what's the initial initial fascination for Ye? I think it's it's this this force of history this groundbreaking you know unmentionable person and he's fascinated by that and so yes but there's an almost an authenticity to this grandiose narcissism that yay is expressing um and also it kind of goes against polarization in an interesting way and what i mean by that is that the left and the right are really leaning into polarization so the left is super woke the right they're talking about groomers and all this kind of stuff but it's all, both sides are basically telling their followers, you have to vote for me because the other guy is nuts. They're both saying that constantly. And that's kind of all they got. I mean, Biden has had... No, the reason we have polarization is because we have profoundly different perspectives on life. We have profoundly different group interests. That polarization is not being created by these you know, very clever propagandists and social media mavens on the left and right. It reflects very real, very concrete, very profound life-changing conflicts of interest between groups and between cultures. Had some, you know, legislative accomplishments, but, you know, he's ultimately a good, he's ultimately a successful politician because he's not Trump. He's the anti-Trump. You have to desperately vote for him to prevent Trump and vice versa. You know, we need to vote for Republicans because the groomers are about to come and turn your dog gay or something. And so they're both operating on that. And Ye kind of comes at it with, I'm neither left nor right. I love everyone. I love the Zionists. I love the Nazis. And there's something disarming about that. So the only way to kind of overcome polarization is just to like overcome it and not lean into it. And there are So this is Richard Spencer. No, this isn't Richard Live. This is Richard recorded December 8th. And you can't overcome polarization when it reflects something real. Right? When it reflects profound group differences, profound cultural differences, right? profound social differences, profound organizational differences, right? profound different perspectives on life. Right? You don't just overcome polarization with you know, more savvy marketing. Right? Yayism isn't going to you know, overcome our differences. few figures there are like a handful of figures who do this like i, I know this sounds like silly to even talk about but, like dolly Parton is beloved tom brady he has his haters but i don't think it's a political division you know it's like half the country hates the patriots the other uh, the other and tom brady the other half is a super fans 
When is the Luke Richard Spencer reunion stream? I don't know. Richard's got me blocked on Twitter, so no expectation. But uh, you know, with many commentators, I've just got nothing to say in response. I got nothing to add to Steve Saylor's analysis. Luke, you're my favorite Jewish, Chinese, Australian, American named Luke. Wow, Francis, that is a tremendous honor. Don't think I take that lightly. And so, but it's not like a pol- it's a polarization in that sense. But but it's, he's kind of like a non-polarizing figure. He kind of rises above it at some level. And Kanye West is a non-polarizing figure. Like, what universe is Richard operating in here? <laughs> Kanye West just rises above our petty divisions. I mean, what a fun, fascinating, compelling perspective. But you know, one completely divorced from reality. This doesn't necessarily mean that EA is going to be successful and this might, whole thing might be a, go down in a ball of flames, but I, I can at least see him attempting something like that. And maybe that's like the best of what it is. So I, I don't know what to say. I, I, have a certain, I, I have a certain respect for this whole thing. And yeah, the other thing that's fascinating spectacle. about it, and I'll mention this and then give other people the floor, is that... Yeah, Richard respects the theatrical spectacle. It's non-political, but in a kind of interesting way. So, as I've said many times, before polarization, we actually had major legislative achievements. We had, you know, throughout the 60s, Great Society, Civil Rights Act, all this kind of big stuff, paradigm-changing situations. In polarization, nothing gets done. Everyone's just, you know, holding on to things by their fingernails and just attacking everyone and engaging in disingenuous negotiations. I mean, it's just a, it's just a disaster, and it's annoying and exhausting. Um well, many of that legislation was terrible, right? So getting legislation done, not necessarily a good thing. And stopping legislation is not necessarily a bad thing. And not being able to pass any new legislation, right? Frequently, that's the best thing you can do. Sometimes the best thing you could do is say, stop, no more. Right? There's nothing inherently wonderful about passing legislation. But yay, obviously, I, I've not seen a real policy proposal from him. But he's just offering, like, theology as politics. He's just offering, like, unadulterated Christianity as politics. And there's something powerful about that. And, I, and, and it's, you know, it's like we're not, we're not even, I guess you could say we're not even pretending anymore. Like, I'm not going to, you know, when, like, when Trump, Trump had some policies in 2015, but it was all just purely about nationalism and race. Less so later, but, like, it was about, like, the Muslim ban. It was about the wall, which was just that. No, it was about reducing illegal immigration, reducing the Ferguson effect which dramatically drove up murder rates, crime rates, 2014, 2015, 2016. Trump stopped that increase and started reversing it. So common sense conservatism of locking up violent criminals, locking up people who do horrible things and keeping them locked up for a long time, that dramatically improves quality of life, dramatically reduces needless deaths through murder, dramatically reduces crime rates, creates more cohesive societies it makes people a lot happier and healthier and the economy more productive that's all it does just you know basic bitch conservatism it's not not as as exciting as apollonianism but uh it just works proxy for white nationalism effectively and i think yay Donald Trump's policies weren't a proxy for white nationalism, right? Reducing crime rates helps white and non-white Americans equally, right? Changing our trade policies helps white and non-white Americans equally. 
driving up wages for the least educated helps white and non-white people, right? So this idea that uh, Donald Trump and his administration were just a proxy for white nationalists, or you'd have to be a white nationalist, right, to see that. <laughs> you'd have to start coming from that perspective. Right? That'd have to be on your brain to, to think that uh, what Trump was doing was white nationalism. Is turning a little bit of that, but he's also just turning it into Christianity. And I know, I know this might kind of surprise some for me to to, to, to treat this positively, but it's sincere, and I admire. Well, Richard is constantly surprising us. He is a contrarian. That's what makes him so compelling. So no, no one should be surprised that uh, Richard has a contrarian hot take. I admire that. I admire the power of Christianity, despite my very serious intellectual critiques of it and also you can even say that like it, it almost has to go this way like as christianity declines you have to have someone like yay just be this like full-throated unabashed you know i i'm just a i'm a fool for love in a way like i i am that's absurd <laughs> christianity did you guys know that 2000 years of christianity inevitably led to kanye west right from jesus to paul to saint augustine to Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Ellen G. White, Desmond Ford, inevitably led to Kanye West. Like, incredibly fun, compelling, entertaining thing to hear, but absolutely absurd. I'm a, sin, sin, a massive sinner myself. I can't control my own, you know, uh, inclinations, but, but I just ultimately want to find love. And... Am I ready for love? That's a great question. Yeah. Richard really thinks that uh, Donald Trump's one of you know his crowd that he's following you know Richard into white nationalism. Yeah, well, aside from you know, aside from you know love and work, I've you know, been incredibly successful in life. Yeah, Kanye West is on the verge of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> no, no, no. Kanye West is is the logical endpoint of Christianity. Didn't you know that there's a straight line between Jesus, the Apostle Paul? Constantine, Augustine, Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Ellen White, Desmond Ford, Kanye West. You can call that silly, but yes. I, I don't know. I, I, I find something sincere about it. I find it interesting. Do the Trump... Look, sincerity is not necessarily a good thing. Like plenty of people are sincerely wrong, like Richard here. Right? Authenticity and sincerity are good in some instances. Now, I want to take those ferries. How do I take those ferries? And I don't want to spend too much money. So right now, I'm getting all around Sydney, riding light rail, riding buses, riding the ferries for a dollar a day. So I don't want to spend too much money. Right? I'm happy to spend a dollar Australian a day. It's like 68 American cents. But uh, I'm currently 20 miles north of the Sydney Opera House. Probably a little bit too far to walk, because that's as the crow flies. Trump has declined. There was a kind of opening, a vacuum for who's going to be, who's going to tap into, like, raw emotion. Who's going to do that? Biden can't really do that. Really? With the decline of Trump, there's an opening for someone who's going to tap into raw emotion, and that's Kanye West. Is that how to be English uploaded... On, no, that was on Manly Beach, mate. 
Manly Beach. So that's the second most famous beach in Sydney. Bondi Beach is the most famous beach. So How to Be English was recorded on Manly Beach, which is a 20-minute ferry ride from the Sydney Opera House. It is there's like a 80-kilometer walk Bondi to Manly. You have to go all around the bay. Yeah, Australian public transport is so much better than American. And why is that? Right? It's not because Australians are so super smart and effective. It's because overwhelmingly due to the composition of people who ride public transport in America versus Australia. Right? The people who ride public transport in Australia just like a lot of Australians. They commit very low rates of crime. They don't tend to litter. They don't tend to create disturbances, right? And so Australia has very low crime rates and that makes using public transportation a delight. And in those parts of America with low crime rates, you can also have you know, good social services and good public transportation there too. But it depends on the demographics. If you have a lot of criminally inclined, you know, violence inclined, histrionic people with high rates of mental illness, right, you, you can't have good public transportation. When I ride the bus in LA, and I know people in New York and Washington DC say the same thing, there's a whole group of people who essentially ride public transport for free. They feel it is their inalienable right. They just fair skip. And there is a growing movement in the United States not to punish people who skip paying their fare. So that's not good for social cohesion. You've got a whole group of people who think they don't have to pay the bus fare or the train fare or the subway fare. They also don't feel inclined to obey other rules. They feel that no sense of moral obligation to other people. And they destroy social cohesion and they destroy public transport. And there's been less and less inclination to punish those people because they overwhelmingly belong to one protected racial group that uh, it is highly discouraged to punish. And so this subsidizes bad behavior, this encourages bad behavior, this unleashes bad behavior. And that's a large part of the reason why riding public transport is a nightmare in America. It's about how infrastructure is based around individual transport and suburbs. It wouldn't work if you had the same demographics as New York City or Washington DC. Right? You have people using your public transport who tend to litter and write graffiti, commit crime, won't pay the fare. Right? It's going to make writing public transport a hell. I think Biden genuinely wants to overcome polarization. He just can't, basically. But he genuinely wants to, like, oh, let's work with both sides. You know, I used to work with segregationists. They were cool guys. That's, that's who he is because he's old. But you hear the cicadas in the background. So they just started up about five, ten minutes ago. This is a sound from my childhood. We had so many cicadas in, in Kurumbong. Man, they can get loud. You can't, it doesn't work. It's totally outmoded. He's just a this weird, like, retroactive president or something. I, I have no idea how to describe it. Kind of fascinating himself. But Gay is doing something that, like, is genuinely powerful. I think it has a chance. I think it could go up in flames, but I think it also has kind of a chance to, like, genuinely really tap into these raw emotions. So, in all of these senses, um, I have a certain respect for it. Just say that. 
What do you guys think? Is the floor open? Yes. I am curious to hear the group's opinions on the Reichsburger arrests. Oh, you guys don't want to talk about that? Yeah, a lot of people want to talk about what's going on in Germany. So I haven't read any articles about it. I think this is probably an operation that uh, scooped up the lower IQ radicals who were probably encouraged by German law enforcement, which tends to be pretty effective and competent. And let's go to the... Is that like the German royal? Well, y- yes. I mean, it depends on what you believe. Well, I mean, he was right. just like in the headline I saw, it said he was part of like the royal family. He is a descendant of a part of that family. I would actually love to talk about I just hear Mark story. Kaiser advocated, guys, so I mean, all of this stuff is over right. at this point. But yeah, he is part of that bloodline. But yeah, um, well, I mean, uh, if, if I can interject, like, like, sure, go ahead. I mean, I was just, I mean, like, before we move on from, from Quintez and Kanye's situation, I mean, I, I can give us some feedback. But I mean, I would love to hear more about this issue, too, if we're ready to move on. We can move on and come back, it's fine. Um, okay. Look, I, I think that this whole thing might be overdone in the sense that, uh, you know, what exactly was going on, um, their, 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 their willingness to, like, really go through with it. You could bring up some questions with that. Um, you could even bring up some questions of entrapment and so on. I mean, we've seen a lot of this stuff before. Um, <laughs> even in the Michigan case in the United States two years ago, you know, those, those were some yahoos who got entrapped by federal officers. In the age of the war on terror, there was just a tremendous amount of uh, Muslim terror attacks that were basically, like, plotted by FBI agents, and then they got a bunch of Muslims arrested. I mean, I- I'm willing to kind of, like, offer some skepticism towards this, and I don't know all the details I have read. So where do you even find uh, Richard Spencer these days? He's got a substack, radixjournal.substack.com. He's on Twitter, backslash Richard B. Spencer. Two mainstream articles on it. But, you know, I think there's some there there. And uh, I was very interested to see a Russian national part of the crew. And so, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I have proper skepticism, but I'm actually not going to discuss this. And I've seen some things in my day in terms of Russian So Richard, you know, was a leader of a marginalized movement. As a result, he hung out with a lot of, you know, marginalized losers. Suspicious circumstances in Moscow, let's just say that. Died of a heart attack at age uh, 43. Possible. He also died of a heart attack after fleeing to Moscow after being under investigation by Ukraine for paying off a homeless person to engage in a false flag operation against a Hungarian cultural center in um, Ukraine in order to uh, split off Hungarian sentiment or something like this. His name was uh, Manuel Oxenreiter. I mean, I need you to draw me a mind map, Richard. I um, lost you about seven plot twists back. That does sound very interesting. He was a guy who was very anti. He was, you know, I did a number of podcasts with him, um, and we talked about kind of anti-imperialism. I have different opinions now, to be honest. I, I think I have matured and refined and evolved. But, um, you know, this was coming out of the Iraq War, and during the Obama years, it was just a different time. And, you know, we were both, you know, I, I think we even, like, praised Obama for not going uh, through with it in Syria after the quote-unquote red line was crossed. So, interesting guy, German. He was doing a magazine called Zuerst, so kind of like a Germany-first magazine. So you see that um, promotion of nationalism by Russians. America first, Germany first. Uh, and he was also very deeply connected with Dugan and was always flying around with Dugan, like, you know, doing some weird conference in Tehran where they did a big, you know, one struggle coalition against the West and stuff like this. 
case we don't get there. Mark Brahman comes on and talks about how Judaism is this uh, mystery called religion. And uh, mystery called religion means that, you know, there's a mystery, that there's a gnosis, that there's a hidden special knowledge at the core of the religion. And Judaism is basically the opposite of of, uh, mystery called religion. Alright, so mystery called religion traditionally refers to mystery religions, right? Mystery called sacred mysteries, right? These are religious schools of the Greco-Roman world for which participation was reserved to initiates, right? So that's not Judaism. Judaism is very opposite. Judaism holds that that the Torah is not in heaven, right? The Torah is available to anyone. You you dip in, you you read it, and uh, you, you practice it, right? So Mark Rama comes on and starts talking about Judaism as a mystery called religion, and just absolutely absurd. So what the Kabbalah Center does, you know, where they say, ah, oh, we've got you know, mystery religion, you know, we've got mysterious knowledge for you about Jewish mysticism, and you just pay us $500, we'll, we'll reveal it to you. That, that's not mainstream Judaism, that's very much on the fringe. So this idea that you have to pay you know, thousands of dollars to get you know, special hidden knowledge is kind of the opposite of Judaism. Now, Christianity says, we've got good news if you believe this, that uh, Jesus died for your sins. This seems like an extension of Hellenic mystery cult religion. So, the main characterization of mystery cult religion is the secrecy associated with the particulars of the initiation and ritual practice. So you still have some elements of this in the, the, the Mormon religion. Uh, they, they want to keep many of their practices secret. So, uh, you know, mystery cult religion had a profound influence on Christianity, and then for the first four centuries, Christianity directly competed for adherence with mystery schools. Then uh, components of mystery religion thinking began to be incorporated into mainstream Christian thinking. So you can understand Christianity in part as a, a mystery religion, right? There's a mystery, like right? Why would God send his son to earth to, to die on the cross for our sins? And if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life, right? There's a, there's a mystery. Why, why, would, why would God work this way? Right? On, on the face of it, it doesn't, doesn't make much sense. But uh, Brahman goes off, you know, talking about Judaism as the mystery cult religion, which is just absurd. Um, liberalism, multi-racial Russia, and multi-ethnic Russia. I don't see the difference. Well, it would be a hyper-Orthodox Russia. 
would be the difference. Okay. Um, so it's it's kind of like Matt Parrot. So yeah, Judaism makes no sense either. That, that's right. Like no religion makes sense from the outside. Like every religion looks absurd if you don't believe in it or you're not raised in it. So I think when you read it, hear about religion in the news, it really makes any sense. It's it's you know at best it's absurd. You know, at worst, it seems like a definite force for evil in the world. So, since the Industrial Revolution, since we've had more and more scientific explanation for how the world works, religion has steadily dropped in prestige and in adherence. So, the Orthodox version of Christianity in Russia has long been simply an extension of the state. Like they, they didn't put up any fight against Soviet communism, for example. But successful. So it's, you know, again, he, he was a Soviet dissident as a young man. He's, he's 10 years, or I think he's 15 years old. Um, he was a Soviet dissident as a young man. Um, and, so, and, he, and then he fell in love with the Soviet Union upon its collapse, which is a very weird thing to do. Uh, so in the late 80s and 90s, he started kind of coming to terms with the Soviet Union so what type of person would fall in love with the Soviet Union after its lapse? Right? A, a romantic, right? Some people love lost causes. This is true in politics. See this with you know, many of the people on the distant right. They love lost causes. Like you, you notice certain people, they react to any news with, oh, this is just confirmation that everything is lost. They interpret every news event you know, through the lens of, you know, all is lost. You know, it's absolutely hopeless. Uh, so, some people, you know, many of the people attracted to to distant politics just love losing. Like the TRS crowd. You know, Mike Enoch, Eric Stryker, right? uh, Matt Parrott, Matthew Heimbach. And these people just love losing. It, it has a romantic psychological thrill. There's a payoff there. It, it justifies their sense that they're heroic martyrs and that you know, all their efforts will amount to nothing, that nobody can do anything and they're just going to rage against the dying of the light. So certain personalities just uh, fall in love with losing. As it was all falling apart, he became a national Bolshevik as a founder of his party, so he was a kind of red-brown alliance type thing. He very interested in Satanism and esotericism, also interested in hyper-orthodoxy. I think that's where he landed. And um, he promotes a geopolitics that is kind of like an exaggerated form of the Russian establishment. So I don't think he's like whispering into Putin's ear or anything like that. But he is, like, everything he says is kind of... So self-verification theory is incredibly powerful. And self-verification theory says that we... We filter everything through our own sense of self. So if our sense of self is you know, that I am defeated, then you're going to interpret you know, the news and, and religion and everything around you, you know, through the lens, does it confirm that I'm defeated? And if it challenges your notion of, of feeling defeated, that will be incredibly disturbing to you. Right? Anything that shakes up your sense of self is usually going to be rejected because it's so disturbing. Because no matter you know, how ineffective your, your theories are, 
least they're yours. And when your most strongly held beliefs about yourself you know, are being repelled by reality, then that's going to shake you up. Like we know ourselves by our tension patterns, that we know ourselves by our mental constructs. And so if I have a vision of myself as socially awkward, I would then feel incentivized to reject anyone who tells me something different. And I'm going to react badly and angrily because they're threatening my sense of self. So if my sense of self is that, you know, I am doomed, then anyone offering me a message of hope, I'm going to reject them because they are undermining uh, the thing that's most precious to me, and that's you know, my understanding of myself, my mind of coherence and cogency. So if we have a vision of ourselves... Okay, the wind's killing the audio, so I, I welcome your feedback. So if I have a vision of myself as uh, someone who's, I don't know, a loser, right? Then you know, anyone who, who threatens that, that conception of myself as a loser, I'm going to reject them, and I'm going to reject them angrily. And if I have a conception of myself that all effort is wasted, then you know, someone who comes along and has a message of hope, you know, I'm just going to want to reject that. So I am going to look for protection against the wind. Kind of like Putin is a so it's, it's in, a, in the sense that it's not in any way anti-Putin. You know, it's, it's kind of like a lot of the right wing, like the dissident right of the Trump era, you know. Like, we ultimately love Trump, but, you know, you got to do more, you know, my man. We become our dictator. We love you kind of thing. And not really question, not undermining it on the most, like, philosophical level. And obviously, during, in 2014, he was hugely in favor of going forward into Ukraine. Needless to say, he is a philosophical propagandist. He also engages in all of this, um, you know, hyper-Orthodox stuff. Uh, Katyon website and so on. When I was getting interviewed by Duganist, it's very interesting because my ex-wife would usually just write the interviews for me and but answer that in more, the, more or less ways that I would answer it in like circa 2016. And, you know, they would always start out with NATO. Like, you know, the, Ameri the real Americans are fed up with NATO and want to move beyond the unipolar world of constraint intervention and the endless war and all this kind of stuff. You know, I kind of, you know, that was kind of genuinely what I believed at the time, but um, So I'm going to try to hide in the crevice of a rock here. <laughs> Sure, sure hope there aren't any snakes down here. That'd be very awkward. But uh, these are the things I do for you to uh, provide that high-quality audio content. It was very anything that undermines NATO. <laughs> and it's like the good empire because it respects ethnicity and it is going to build this, like, you know, I think he adopts the kind of, like, perennialism in the sense that all religions are good in the sense that they're all getting at some deep truth like christianity and in sufi islam they're they're both getting at some like deeper truth about the world and so they're all good you know except you probably not judaism although he might even say that it too is good um so it's you know it's a one one snuggle coalition but it's all based on being hyper-religious you know it's interesting you see a little bit of that with yeism uh, yes. as well he said he likes putin right <laughs> Actually, on your, on your Twitter space, Richard, um, that fellow, Pat, <laughs> he lovingly admonished his, um, his accent. Um, uh -huh. He actually, I am waiting for the same treatment one day, but I'm not sure how good your Aussie is. But um, he, he right. made some very good points about Christianity's ability to sort of hear today sort of like civil, pluralistic, uh, I think you called it like spiritual miscegenation. It actually got me thinking for a couple of hours on that point. I mean, that is, I suppose, the great hope of many 
centrist and centre-right people of Christianity in the past 20th century is that they sort of had an optimistic idealism along with many uh, radicals who sort of um, disregarded racialism outright on moral grounds. Um, they perhaps sort of paid at lip service or, in, or thought it was legitimate, but thought, you know, sort of quote-unquote, that God could overcome the differences yeah. so that we could all yeah. you know, Richard talking you know, about Australia. type of uh, situation. Yes. You know, um, to, to, to... So I'm going to duck into this cave here when when the wind gets bad. But when the wind's not too bad, I'll give you this beautiful view. Touch on that. I mean, and I'm glad Mark is here. I mean, you know, I, I think one aspect of Apolloism is that, yes, you know, Apollo is an avatar of what we value most. And yes, he is Aryan, But... At the same time, the beauty, I mean, it is also universal. We think universally. Uh-oh. I'm getting a call. Okay. Hang on, guys. How's it going? Hey, Not bad, mate. Not bad. I'm just... Uh... Up here in uh, Palm Beach, I'm doing a doing a uh, live stream right now. So you're you're live on the air. I can I can stop the live stream if if necessary. No, no, I have a question for you to research. Okay. Is a 1943 Australian penny worth anything? Is a 1943 Australian penny worth anything? Okay, I will present that to my enormous audience, and uh, I'll get back to you. Yeah. See if you can get an answer on that. You might have to Google it. I want you to know, mate, help help is on the way. So hang on. Help is on the way, mate. Hang on. Hang on. Help is on the way. Hang on. Okay, mate. Cheers. Good talk. 43. Help is on the way. Hang on. Bye. Okay, that was, uh, that was an interjection there from my dear brother. So, is a 1943 Australian penny worth anything? Open question to the group. We have you. I, I think it would be wrong for us to conclude from any criticism of Christianity that we don't also need to think on a planetary level. Yeah, we need to perhaps think on a planetary level. We also need to think on an individual level, on a family level, on a communal level. Here comes the wind. Got to go hide and again. All, there is some beauty to the, the uh, I almost said Russia, to the, um, the, the Roman system of hierarchy and subjugation so that you kind of can take another group's God into the pantheon and recognize them. And that is something that's totally impossible with both Judaism and Christianity. I mean, Tikkun Olam is ultimately about, like, we are going to rid the world of idols. We're going to rid the world of anyone else's God. There is one. Well, Christianity did, you know, take a lot of conceptions from the Jews about God. Uh, but they also took, you know, Greco-Roman conceptions. And there are plenty of forms of Christianity which are syncretistic, right? They take... You know, uh, conceptions about God from, from you know the African culture that they're in. One, and obviously Christianity is about that. You know, it's about holding hands and love and peace and all that too. But it's you know you, it, it's not. There, there's some level of monotheism where you can't respect the other. In rec- recognition, and that 
make alien sense, dare I say it. And we need to do that too. Look, there's some sense in any strong in-group identity where you can't respect the other. Yeah, the pre-Hitler pennies can be quite valuable, says Elliot. And if you have a strong commitment to your family, that's going to make friends less important to you. If you have a strong in-group identity, it's going to make, you know, out groups not, not something that you really care for. There just better bloody not be any snakes down here. That would ruin my whole day. Coup, actually. I don't... I, I don't like the kind of backwardness of nationalism. And, and I think there's a certain kind of like totalitarianness and totalitarianism and brutality of like monotheism. We just want to crush every, every ideal must be smashed. And, you know. Okay, so you know, that uh, brutalness and totalitarianness, right? That's just the flip side of the love and community that is created. Right, so. You know, nationalism isn't, you know, inherently more brutal than, uh, you know, religious commitments or, you know, socialism or capitalism or building an empire. All right. So this idea that uh, nationalism is primitive and backward uh, to, to love your own people, right? There's a dark side to family. Right? There's a dark side to every form of human organization. So... I don't share Richard's contempt for nationalism, you know, regarding it as, as barbaric and, and backwards. I, that, that just strikes me as bizarre. It's the most powerful political force in the world today, and it's a great way of uniting people and giving them, you know, a common experience. You know, so on. We're going to have to recognize peoples and integrate them to some degree. No, we, we, we don't. Right? If you've got strong family identity then other people simply won't be as real to you. Right? The stronger you are in your connection with your family, right, the less time you'll have for friends and the less you'll think about people outside your family. If you don't have strong family ties, then, uh, then you'll put more emphasis on friendship. Is Apollo ready for love? <laughs> <sighs> Nick Fuentes is revolving, reviving the old uh, mystery schools. Great to see. Yeah, so everyone loves a mystery. Everyone loves to you know, have secret knowledge that uh, unlocks how the world works. Another term for mystery called religion is magic key thinking. People love magic key thinking. That There's this one magical key that unlocks how the world works, whether it's the Jews or secular humanists or you know, free markets well, you don't really don't hear many people subscribing you know free market whoa that was some butterfly you know, magic key abilities to free markets it's more of a like kind of a marxist communist thing to overcome all of this nationalism in this if nationalism in the sense just means like leave me alone let's divide up everything you know don't fuck off you know all that like it, it that's only one component of nationalism. Uh, you put nationalism under stress, then you, you get that response. So there was this, in Neil Strauss's The Game, when he talks about first arriving in Los Angeles, he took Alexander Technique, 
faster to improve his posture. Yeah, so that, that one sentence or two about taking Alexander Technique classes to improve his posture, I read that, and that's when I decided to sign up for the Alexander Technique. Then when I was looking for teachers, I chose the most attractive one, and that turned out to be Neil Strauss's teacher, Julia Calder. She was a great teacher, and I'd always had really bad posture and problems with my voice, so I thought Alexander Technique could help with all that and make me more successful womanizer and I ended up taking his same teacher Julia Calder and then she suggested I train to be an Alexander Technique teacher and here I am today we do need to get we need to be able to then uh, Neil Strauss he he eventually realized that he had you know sex and love addiction and he uh, ended up in, in rehab and he, he wrote a whole book about his experience with uh, rehab. So that came out about eight years ago. It's kind of the, the sequel to the game. So Neil Strauss got married, and uh, but he was compulsively you know, sleeping with women, which was threatening his marriage. And it was funny how people, when he was interviewed about this new book, and the media, like the media took it for granted that Neil had taken on some commitment to monogamy. I think, I think his new book's called The Truth, meaning new as in eight years ago, Truth About Relationships. But uh, nowhere in this new book does he say that he's committed to monogamy. It's just that uh, he realized that he needed to you know, change many of his responses to life and, and to love and, and to women. That, uh, he didn't want to behave compulsively anymore. So reducing the compulsive component does not mean that you necessarily become monogamous. So... You know, sex addiction has has many levels, and for some people, it means that they need to try to let go of lust. And for other people, it means no more masturbation. For other people, it means you know, no more hookers and strip clubs. Other people, no more porn. Other people, no more promiscuity. So, in Sexaholics Anonymous, it means you know, no more lust. And so, the, the, you know, the bottom line in Sexaholics Anonymous, I enjoy listening to many of the podcasts on the Daily Reprieve. Uh, you say you say no to lust, and you you know rejigger your life so that uh, you know you can let go of lust. To move beyond that, because I ultimately think nationalism is limiting, and it's that's a kind of non-starter. And then Yay kind of admits to not just alcoholism but also sex addiction. So his component for his Christianity, you know, is will it stop me going to bed with supermodels? That's his, his key question. So, Ye doesn't sound like someone who's particularly in control of his destiny right now. You're, you're limited from the very beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree that um, Apolloism is, is um, planetary. It's ultimately, it's interstellar, ideally, right? Yeah. Um, but I, and so I, I, I share a lot of your sentiment. Um, you know, I think that uh, one way of thinking about it, though, is, um, you know, one of the ways the Romans in particular dealt with other, like, foreign cults, and, you know, cults that they also saw as adversarial, um, the cult of Bacchus, for example, is that they uh, would effectively kind of neuter it or domesticate it, so that they, they would kind of take it in, but then they would also sort of uh, give it rules and basically reduce it um, so that it was no longer a kind of uh, toxic formation, essentially. Um, well, Christianity and Judaism have done the same thing. 
when when Jews have, have traveled to a new land and uh, live with a different culture, they've had to find elements of that culture that they want to adopt for their own and elements that they wanted to reject. Same with Christians. Um, so uh, domestication, I think, is, 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 is the best word. That was the Roman system. Uh, the Greek system, the Greeks, it was, it was much looser, and there is much more a sense of kind of uh, creativity during the Greek period. And the Romans uh, really began to sort of formalize religion. Um, Yeah, I don't really have a mic. I'm just using my, my cheap Aussie phone. I'm not using an external mic. So give me give me the signal when it's just too bad. And I'll just uh, switch over to making you know, pre-recorded uh, videos. Um, and lend a great deal of more um, order to it. Look, every civilization has adopted things from surrounding civilizations. Right? That's not unique to unique to the Jews or to the Christians or you know, to, the, to the Greeks or the Romans. You know, every civilization does this. Um, you know, there, there is something uh, there's something to be said for both systems. Ultimately, the Roman system, in my view, is, is superior, but um, but not in all ways. For, for example, um, Apollo, for example, becomes less of a figure um, in uh, Rome, uh, though he, he, he returns uh, with Augustus especially. Um, and I think that... Um, a part of that had to do with the kind of the utility of the Roman Empire, which was based on, which was based on conquest, effectively. Um, and so you see, especially the salience of Mars, for example, in Rome, which is a, a contrast uh, from Greece, where he is Ares, and Ares is a. Uh, often in, in myth, Ares is kind of ridiculed and is kind of a foil in myth, right? So that there's a more you have a kind of more cosmopolitan sense in Greece, where they're more skeptical and critical of, of war, um, for example. And I think with good reason. You know, what I mean, I think that they, I think that our time is actually more of a time for Apollo. Because I don't think that... For... Look, I'm, I'm highly, highly skeptical of Mark Brahman's grasp of whatever he's talking about because just too often he says things that are just, you know, completely wrong. That, that just shows he's done you know, no study in the area. First of all, we don't we don't really have the means to go to war, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, of course. But uh, so I think that we have to, uh, we, we have to approach this as a, a sort of a cultural war or a religio-cultural war because those are kind of the means that are available to us um, and I think that Apollo is especially the god for that Apollo is a god of art uh, and he is uh, you know Mercury they say is the god of communication but Apollo really who really thinks Apolloism is going to be the new the new elite religion Apollo also is a god of communication art music and that sort of thing I mean there are there are, are actually kind of similarities between Mercury who's a uh, uh, proto-Jewish God and Apollo, who's a, you know an Aryan God, um, and I, I have my theories about that. I think that in some ways uh, Mercury is sort of developed as a uh, kind of shadow or, or attempted imitation of some of the functions of Apollo, for example, um, uh, especially a pastoral function of leading the society. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I, I take what you're saying, um, and I, but I think I, I would just I would uh, temperate or moderate it with the things that I've said. In other words, that um, you know ultimately too, and this is my argument too, is that uh, the cult of Apollo was an attempt to. Um, you know, frankly, on some level, it was an attempt at eugenics, right? So it was an attempt at um, recapturing a sort of uh, Nordic or um, Hyperborean founding type. Um, so this was one of the goals of the cult of Apollo, for example. And I think that the, we can sort of perceive it as a sort of general goal amongst amongst the Olympian gods. Uh, so that would include Jupiter and Juno, for example. And there's one, you know, there's one myth that sort of speaks to this uh, this eugenic goal and, and the way this, the eugenics manifests itself. Hey, Pill Eater, what's going on, man? Long time no talk. What's new? 
itself or one of the ways is through the, the idols, right? The, that represent effectively breeding models, um, like the gods themselves or the concepts of the gods themselves. They represent sort of breeding ideals. Um, you know, Apollo in particular, god of beauty, balance, uh, strength, intelligence. You know, a um, we call him a Renaissance man, um, or we call him a he's also the uh, the polymath, right? Um, so there is that goal, and I think that the in you know in the position that we're in now, we're not really in a position to create uh, the religion and media that's required to sort of um, realize some of our, our you know longer term goals. But those goals would be um, you know effectively creating cults that would also direct breeding to the extent that it can be breed uh, to the extent to the extent that it can be directed. Uh, and I think that this is ultimately the goals of religion in general, whether it's Christianity or um, it's Apolloism. But I think that in the case of mystery religions, that goal is not made explicit, of course, right? It's, it's a mystery. Uh, so that goal is... Look, the, the goal of religion from a secular perspective is to provide comfort. And that's, that's from a utilitarian perspective, from an outside, non-believing perspective, what religions provide primarily is comfort. The goal is not acknowledged or admitted. Um, so there is that aspect of it, too. So, but it becomes, religion becomes a way of... Uh, um, pursuing goals on a religio-cultural level. Uh, so, on a, in a this idea that religion is primarily about pursuing goals on, on, a, on a cultural level—I mean, that just uh, strikes me as absurd. A peaceful way. It's a way of conducting warfare peacefully. Uh, uh, and so, that's what I would say. That it, it is um, that ultimately, you know, there is definitely a racial aspect, of course, to Apollo. And um, Apollo, I say uh, that Apollo is is the Aryan, right? So, in the sense that, in the way that Judah represents the tribe of. Judah and represents Jews. Apollo represents the tribe of Aryans. Uh, you know, probably more than any other mythic figure you can think of. Um, and in fact, that's the reason that um, uh, you know I, I and uh, Richard and I have uh, I've been drawn to the god, of course, because it's a god that represents us, of course, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, there... so I think Richard and Mark see the, see themselves, you know, as embodied in Apollo. There is a strong racial aspect there, but we have to, you know, we have to find ways to. In the Romans, again, to Richard's point, uh, found a way of. Um, uh, you know, engaging the world and interacting in the world. I mean, of course, they also interacted in the world uh, through warfare and violently in some cases, but there was always an effort, effort to uh, solve things culturally and religiously. That was always the, uh, you know, that was always the sort of first tendency or the hope, uh, you know, uh, Pax Romana. It was to um, basically to uh, to get people into the Roman system, right? And um, ideally to worship the Roman gods uh, as well. So in that way, it is universal. It is a unique culture, right? So ideally, you know, ideally the world would ultimately uh, consider Jupiter King and Apollo, you know, the, the prince of gods. Um, that would be the, the kind of the ideal um, ending to a planetary, you know, uh, situation, I suppose. Um, anyways. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how we crack this nut. Um, I mean, I, I discussed, we discussed this actually, and, um, the idea of creating a recognized religious group. And I do think that that is necessary. I, I think that's what... Yeah, that's what you do. This is Richard Spencer, Mark Rahman, on their December 8th podcast on Richard Spencer's Substack Radix Journal. So, I mean, it's clear that uh, Richard and company are developing a new religion, just the same reason that uh, William Pierce developed a new religion. So William Pierce's religion was like cosmotheism, and so for Richard and Mark Brahman, it's Apolloism, because what they explicitly want to do in their explicit meta-political project is socially unacceptable, and they're tired of paying the price in social ostracism for espousing what they really believe, so now they're trying to cloak it in religious terms.
thinking that uh, people will be too stupid to understand what's really going on. That's where we need to go. We need to get beyond like politics because this isn't really a really issue. And politics matter, of course, and it's important to Yeah, a lot of political people say they want to get beyond politics. That's the type of thing you say when you've been losing, when you see no way to win politically, and you start talking about, oh, I want to get beyond politics. To talk about, but it's not ultimately about that. And so I, I do think we want to be a recognized, out-in-the-open religious group. And if we're going to be that, keep in mind that any sort of... Yeah, because then you think you'll be afforded protections of freedom of religion and you won't be persecuted anymore. Like, at least active discrimination is not going to really be possible. Now, I think, you know, there's going to obviously be a filter due to the ideas themselves and so on, but, you know, the answer of, like, are you going to kick someone out for not being white or something? Uh, my answer to that, at some point, is no. I mean, it, it's... Oh, at some point. Yeah, at some point. Right, that just sort of, you know, invalidates everything. Like, yeah, in the fullness of time, or at some point, just uh, meaningless. You just, if this is the direction that we're moving, there are pragmatic concerns, and I think there are also kind of bigger philosophical concerns that this is something that is bigger than we are, and it's something that's actually separate from any kind of, you know, blood and soil or biological question. It's related to it. It's, it, it informs it in many ways, but it is, it is distinct. And so that, that's just my view on it. I mean, you could make some kind of comparison, I think, maybe between Judaism and Israel. Um, Judah, you know, the Judah, they bequeath the religion its name. They are the Jews. They are... Look, Jews are a tribe in, in societies about religion. They're all about religion. Then the tribe will you know, manifest and describe itself in religious terms in an environment where people are all about nationalism, the Jews will express themselves in nationalistic terms. In a community that's all about law, such as the Roman Empire, the Jews will express themselves in legal terms, such as the Talmud. In a society all about philosophy, such as the Spanish golden age of Islam in the 11th, 12th century, then Jews will express themselves philosophically. So Jews are profoundly influenced by the society that they live in. A very special type. Israel is a larger body of people who are devoted to Yahweh. No, Israel is not primarily about people who are devoted to Yahweh. At any one time, you'd be hard-pressed to find more than you know, 1% or even 0.1% of Jews who are you know, devoted to Yahweh. Right? J- Judaism and Jews is primarily a tribal national identity. It's not about devotion to Yahweh. Some individual Jews, yes. But Jews are people, and people relate better and connect better with people that they can touch and smell and feel and eat with. And that includes many people who we wouldn't consider Jews today, but they kind of are Jews on some level, much in the way that fundamentalist white Christians who have zero Ashkenazi DNA are Jews. Okay, that's absurd that uh, fundamentalist white Christians are Jews. They're not. That, that's not an analysis that works. There's no point to Judaism without a God. Well, Judaism is simply an extended family. Is there any point to a family without God? Right, people need people. 
And people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. All right? So we're naturally raised to develop you know, positive feelings for the people that we hang out with most. What's the difference then? People naturally form bonds with other people who are like them. They, they, they live in families and extended families. That's the most normal, natural, time-tested way of organizing people in families and extended families. And a tribe and a nation are simply an extended family. Now, your family and extended family may have beliefs about God, but it's not your shared beliefs about God that bring you together. That's just one expression of a pre-existing bond. On some really basic level, or more precisely, there is Israelis. And I do think that some kind of solution could be found in that way. Um, there... Evangelical Christians are not Israelis. Yeah, bro, all my kids are blonde hair and blue-eyed. They are super European. Yes, many Jews are blue-eyed and blonde hair and still have substantial Jewish ancestry. The only point in Judaism is God, bro. Uh, 3,000 years ago, 2,800 years ago, 2,600 years ago, there was no such thing as uh, Judaism. Judaism is a modern term for the religion practiced by some Jews. The Jews have been around for thousands of years before there was ever a term Judaism. And they practiced their tribal ways and they had their tribal beliefs and philosophies just like other tribes. There's, you know, Apollo is the type, he's what we're striving after, but there might very well be different people who are going to serve in this end. But perhaps I have found myself in a remarkable situation in which I am almost loosey-goosey and tolerant on this matter. <laughs> well, why is Richard so loosey-goosey and tolerant on this matter? Because of the tremendous blowback that he's received, or the criticism and social censure and ostracizing that he's received. That's why now Richard is so liberal and humanist. It's going to be pushback, but I would, uh, I would stand behind everything I just said. Well, look, I think maybe there's a run, there's room for an orthodox position. Um, and a non-orthodox position. Oh, in other words, there's one thing that we say publicly... And there's another thing we say privately. So this is a bit like those Christians who privately hold, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to burn in hell. But they'll do anything not to say that publicly. Your position may be the non-Orthodox position. Um, I mean, the Judaism allows both for Orthodox and non-Orthodox positions, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Orthodox Judaism does not recognize as Judaism non-Orthodox expressions of Judaism. And, you know, I would say that um, I would say an aspect of that, too, is, is related to um, to crypto Judaism. Even well, in, in other words, so you can have secular Jews or atheist Jews um, that identify with you with being a Jew, um, but they're, they're not practicing Jews, for example. But they're still out in the world. Uh, basically, you'll find Orthodox Jews who are atheists. They just practice Judaism. They practice the rituals of their group. Basically serving the interests of Jewry. Um and consciously, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that, that that is also a model um, that we can pursue with Apollos, and I think we should pursue. In fact, it, it's a kind of, um, I think it's, the Judaism developed in that way to basically overcome uh, a lot of the problems that we face today. Um, uh, so in other words... Yeah, every civilization adapts to changing circumstances. Those civilizations that don't adapt to changing circumstances die. They wither away. Uh, you know, crypto-Judaism uh, exists. 
know, crypto Jews exist because uh, they don't want to admit or reveal that they're Jews, right? Because if they do reveal that they're Jews, you'll lose some advantage. Uh, they won't be able to do business and, and uh, earn money or something like this or, or enter a trade or enter a field. Um, so I think that that's also the case with the Apollo. So there's a kind of there's a crypto element of it. And then there's also a kind of formal element of it. Uh, so there's one message for the outside, a message that will reduce social sanction. Why did you become Jewish if it wasn't for a God issue? Yeah, I believed in God. Now, I believe that God was the author of the Torah. Now, I believe that God was the author of Judaism. I wanted to lead a God-based life. But that's very much an outlier in Jewish life. Like, that was my experience. That has been my experience. But that's not how it works for most Jews. Like, people who convert to a new religion tend to be neurotic, like have high levels of neuroticism. So, obviously, I was feeling pretty disconnected. I wasn't really my best self. I was lonely and troubled. So, reaching for meaning. People who become obsessed about meaning usually lack normal levels of human connection. So, when you become obsessed with meaning, you become then, you know, very vulnerable. Luckily... I had a mentor, Dennis Prager, who's a pretty moderate guy, and you know was was a guide in a in a good, healthy, moderate direction. People who become obsessed about meaning, obsessed about God, is usually a screw loose with them. Right? Normally, people who are obsessed about God, unobsessed with other people. I don't have any opinion on uh, Duvid and his beliefs, but yeah, people who are most intoxicated by God. They're usually not terribly enamored or useful to their fellow people. Now, people who are incredibly heavenly-minded don't tend to be of much earthly good. Right? It's very hard to love God and to love your fellow man. Right? People usually love one or the other. That will eventually include a temple um, and also uh, you know, a ritual, uh, kind of symbolically co- Yes, I have gone to Chabad synagogues. I've had a wonderful experience with Chabad rabbis. So Chabad is a Hasidic branch of Orthodox Judaism that's still very open to outsiders. It's the first form of Orthodox Judaism that doesn't pronounce judgment on people based on their level of uh, Jewish observance. And uh, they're probably the, the most worldly of the various branches of Hasidic Judaism, most likely to have some secular education. They're able to talk about a wide variety of issues. They tend to be very happy people, very positive people. So I've overwhelmingly had good experiences with the Jews. Do I think the Talmud goes back to Moses, or was it invented out of the destruction of the Second Temple? Well, there was a written Torah that, you know, from the traditional Orthodox perspective, was given by God about 3,200 years ago. From a secular perspective, it was put together by man and edited together, reaching final form about 2,500 years ago long as there was a written Torah, right? Before there was a written Torah, there was an oral tradition that eventually became the written Torah. That's the, the secular perspective. Then when you had the written Torah, you had an oral tradition interpreting and expanding it, and that oral tradition got written down. So apparently the, the oral Torah, the Mishnah, is traditionally thought to have been written down about year 200 of the Common Era. The Talmud was then a series of of uh, rabbinic discussions that were put down in shorthand and, you know, reached their final form written down around you know, 1,200, 1,100 years ago. 
the coherent ritual, but then there will also be a crypto element. And among that crypto element, too, uh, would include, for example, artists, right? Um, ultimately, artists working in Hollywood uh, or this sort of thing, um, but, in, but also lawyers, people in all fields. So Jews working in Hollywood who are atheists aren't crypto Jews, right? To be Jewish is a tribal identity. You're either born Jewish or you convert through the traditional Jewish process of passing a Beit Din, a group of rabbis who you know, sign off on your conversion after you do requisite work and establish yourself within a particular community. Um, that are crypto uh, Apollonian in the way that... Um, you know, in the way that uh, Jews have functioned in the past, uh, and then eventually as... as uh... Yeah, people will sometimes play down their identity, whether it's Jewish or Christian or Mormon or gay, if that's to their advantage. How come I chose Judaism instead of Islam? I was profoundly affected by Dennis Prager. Judaism made the most sense to me. I was like intellectually stimulated by Judaism, so Islam's kind of a low IQ religion. It's overwhelmingly a religion for stupid people. Christianity, I just couldn't buy into. That Judaism, because it's primarily about the law, it leaves you incredibly intellectually open to explore all sorts of different things. So Judaism made the fewest requirements on me in terms of belief. I was able to stay intellectually open while embracing Judaism, and that's important to me. As the cult or the movement uh, gains power. So, you know, where, you know, whether my faith in God waxes or wanes, that doesn't affect my, my standing in, in Judaism, you know, my observance of the traditions and rituals of the tribe. It, you know, it doesn't affect the, the quality of my relationships with you know, fellow members of the tribe. And you know, if I get bored with studying one aspect of Judaism, say the Talmud or you know, mystical works about God, there's so much else I can study, philosophy, literature, history. It's a very rich intellectual, cultural tradition. And people will be able to you know, openly be Apollonians, and there won't be a taboo about it, right? So, I mean, I think that just becomes a necessary... I think uh, people will figure out pretty early on that uh, Apollonian is a code word for Nazi or white nationalist. So I don't think you're going to be able to get away with just uh, claiming it's a, just a religion, bro. I don't think people are going to buy it. Necessary. Um, that's just sort of a way, a model that um, is a kind of obvious model, right? Um, you know, and because ultimately the goal is not to be a mystery cult. And I know we're not a mystery cult, right? Because we're not a mystery cult in the sense that um, uh, we reveal symbol meaning. Uh, we, we, we're in the practice of revealing meaning of myth as opposed to creating opaque myth. Um, though, that, that, though we should also be in the practice of creating myth. Certainly that's one of the functions of a kind of uh, living God and living religion is to be able to create myth. Um, but I think you understand my point is that um, the explicit part of the cult would be interested in explicating revealing myth meaning as opposed to uh, using parable and myth in a cryptic manner in the way that it's used in Christianity and Judaism, for example. Um, yeah, this idea that Judaism is a mystery cult religion is absurd. Right? Judaism is very opposite. Here's the Torah. It's not in heaven. It's right before you. you know, anyone can read it. Anyone can practice it. Here it is. It's the opposite of some esoteric religion where only special initiates allowed access to the holy text. But yeah, I, but yeah, as far as uh, the race question, I think, it, I mean, part of your question too, or part of your... Um, uh, See, this is just trying to make a disguise for you know, a racial movement. Uh, part of the topic too includes an idea of, uh, you know, what's practical. Uh, so we're also talking about tactics. So maybe, uh, Richard, you're, you're talking about tactics on some level. Um, whereas, yeah. uh, right, 
which is a different from strategy uh, as, as well, right? So strategy is more um, far-seeing, and tactics is more like, well, how do we actually get this done? How do, how do we make this viable um, so that we can do it? But I think I am kind of talking about both, actually. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I'm the liberal. I'm the liberal Apollonian on, on this question. I, I just think that it has to go in that direction. It, 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 well, let me ask you this. In, in, yeah. Would you be satisfied in 400 years if uh, all the Apollonians were... Uh, Japanese men. Okay. Well, okay. No, of course, that's not. Well, so, this, so there is there is a strategic element or goal here. Tactical element, yes. Yeah, there is a larger strategic goal. Also, I, mean, I, I, think, I think that you, Richard, I think that you and I agree on the following point. We don't consider we don't consider uh, the white race um, something that just has to be preserved, uh, you know, because of some uh, some feeling of the white race, uh, but rather it's something that has to be improved. Right. So yes. we're more in the business of ameliorating. Uh, the white race and the world generally. Yeah, we have a, the white race has a world mission that it should be possessed by. It should have a, you know, it, it's, it is ultimately about a civilization and our mission on this planet is to promote this. You know, they, they, it goes back and forth. It's, and I'm not saying this in some kind of civilizational nationalist way or something like that. It, it's it's both. But, you know, you think, like, would I be happy if in 400 years the Philippines are all Japanese? No, of course not. But I also think that they're going to be Japanese people. And some of them, yeah, well, no, they're, they're going to be Japanese people. I, some perhaps might be Apollonian and some might perhaps be kind of working in our direction. Sure. No, I understand your point. Okay. I think uh, I'm going to leave it for there. Time for me to resume my walkabout. Bye-bye.